Good morning. Howdy. Yes, it is good to be back here in Aggieland College Station. For those of you that do not know, my name is Benjamin Pinkerton, and I used to work here at Grace Bible Church, specifically as the coordinator of Club 56 and Youth. See, me and my wife, we came from Fort Worth. We came to College Station. We went through A&M. And my senior year, I finally asked Kara to go on dates with me. She said yes after a while. And we went all the way through that year. And at the end of my final exam, I stood up and said, I'm about to propose. I walked out the door and proposed to Kara like two hours later. Right? So great memories. Right after that, I came on crew staff where I was working with the cadets in the Corps. And then after that, my old college pastor reached out to me about him starting this church called Grace Bible Church Creekside, wanting to know if I might come on as youth and Club 56 coordinator, which I was privileged and honored to get that call. And so got to come on staff here for two years, intern in the fellows program. After that, me and my wife, we moved back to Dallas so that I could attend Dallas Theological Seminary, getting my master's in theology. And I am privileged and blessed to say that I only have one year left. One year left. Yeah, thank, thank you. So I'm right in the Hebrew grind, this summer intensive. And so again, it is a joy to be here with you guys today. This was the place that me and my wife really started walking in our faith, understanding scripture better in community and walking towards faithfulness to God. And so always blessed to be here. So for those of you that have been here throughout the summer, Grace Bible Church has been going through a series called Founders. And it's based on these New Testament leaders, these character studies, these characters in the scripture that we look to, we see their joys and we see their sorrows. And the narrators of each of these different books, they talk about these characters in a way that encourages us to either emulate things that they're doing or to avoid things that they do. But it's always in the context of how is the author painting the picture of this specific character? And so when I got asked to do a New Testament character, I went loving, lovingly with my boy, JTB, John the Baptist. Now, the reason I went with JTB is when I was a young kid, I was going through my Bible and I came across a very specific verse. And this was the verse. And again, no context. I just read this verse and I see, among those that are born of women, there is not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. Now, I'll give you one guess as to who said that. It was Jesus. That's exactly right. Sunday school answer. But if Jesus, our Messiah, as Christians following Jesus Christ, if he's to say this about this man, John the Baptist, then I want to know John the Baptist. I want to understand his character. I want to understand his life, how he lived, how he died, what was his message. And I want to emulate that because John obviously was going to emulate for me faithfulness to God. So my goal for today is how it's going to play out, is I want to do a quick, brief overview of the character of John the Baptist. I want to talk about his origin. I want to talk about what the Old Testament said about him as the forerunner to Christ. I want to look at his demeanor, and then I want to look at what did he preach. And all of that in a quick summary, because I really want to dive into a very particular part of John the Baptist's life found in Matthew 14, his death. So, is everyone on board with that? Give me a giggum. There we go. Awesome. Awesome. So Luke chapter one, verse five, we're going to go into John the Baptist's origin. And we're going to see that John the Baptist was born 
to an elderly priestly family, Zacharias and Elizabeth. You should go. I'm going to have these PowerPoints and the outline up later today. And so as you go, if you don't have to write all of this down, it's a quick overview, but go and check out Luke 1 verses 5 through 45, where you're going to see the birth of John the Baptist. And it happened in a miraculous way because again, Zacharias was a priest and he was visited and told that you're going to have a child. And he's like, no way. We are an elderly couple. And for that, that disbelief, his mouth was zipped up for, oh, nine months until John the Baptist came along the scene. Crazy story. But what we see about John the Baptist's parents, it says this in Luke chapter one, verse six. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. So that's his origin. We notice that his mom, Elizabeth, is actually related to Mary, the mother of Jesus, making Jesus and John the Baptist cousins. Imagine that at family reunions, right? Why can't you be more like Jesus, John, right? So that's John the Baptist's origin. Now, what did the Old Testament speak about John the Baptist? It calls him the forerunner. He is called to prepare Israel for her Messiah. We see that first in Isaiah. It says, a voice cries out, in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, construct in the desert a road for our God. And then in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, before these 400 years we call the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some people call it the silent years, even though it wasn't silent. Lots were happening in that time period. But Malachi writes this in chapter three. I am about to send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Indeed, the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you long for is certainly coming, says the Lord who rules over all. So the Old Testament speaks of John the Baptist very specifically and says he is to prepare Israel for the coming Messiah. What was John the Baptist like? What was his demeanor? We see, first of all, this guy was an interesting cat, right? Clothing made from camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his diet consisting of the ever awesome locust and wild honey found in Matthew 3, 4. What we're going to notice about it's very significant. The attire that he wore, one contrasted the religious leaders of Jerusalem who lived in luxury and in ease. He did not dress like them. But even more significantly, if you go to 2 Kings 1, verse 8, There was another prophet that dressed very similar to this named Elijah. So John the Baptist and Elijah, there's a connection that we will see throughout the gospels. Now, what was John the Baptist like? He was somewhat reclusive. He lived an ascetic lifestyle. It says in Matthew 11 that he came neither eating nor drinking. Now, of course he ate and he drank, but that was the time period of of community and of fellowship. And yet John the Baptist, he wasn't a party goer. He wasn't the social butterfly. In fact, if you wanted an audience with John the Baptist, you had to go into the wilderness. You had to go connect and listen to him. So he was different already. There was something different about him. He was set apart for a certain purpose to prepare the way for the Lord. What was John the Baptist's message? What did he preach about? And there's three things that we see, but most significant, John the Baptist was supposed to point to Jesus, to prepare the way for the Messiah. When John the Baptist sees Jesus in John chapter one, he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, referencing the Passover lamb. Then later when they say, John, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm actually not even fit to untie the sandals of the Messiah. 
the lowest act of a slave. I am not even fit to be a slave to the Messiah. And lastly, a very famous verse in John 3.30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. You see that bumper sticker, he is greater than I, lowercase. Maybe it comes from this passage. Also, John the Baptist preaches on repentance. Repent means to literally turn back, turn away. So repentance, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or is near. What he's calling people to when he calls them to repentance is to turn away from this superficial, this fake submission to God and instead turn back to covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. Because these were a people that were supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to represent the kingdom of God. They were given specific commands in the Mosaic covenant. You follow these commands out of your reverence and out of your heart for God. And yet they had made it about so many other things, about prestige and power and reputation and maintaining status quo. And so he called them out and said, you need to repent. Why? Because judgment is coming. Divine retribution, wrath is coming, winnowing fork in the Lord's hand, unquenchable fire. Not a popular message, but he says, you need to turn back because this is fake. This is superficial. This is not real, true religion following after Yahweh in covenant faithfulness from a heart change, you need to turn back. So that's the message of John the Baptist. So again, what we're gonna do is we're gonna dive into a very particular part of John the Baptist's life, specifically in Matthew chapter 14, the death of John the Baptist. Now I wanna pray for us and we're gonna dive right in. Well, Father, we just come to you God, we don't want this to just be an educational procedure where we get to study a character in the Bible and walk away maybe being able to answer some Bible study quiz later about John the Baptist. We know that the Bible has meant much more than education, but transformation. And so as we study John the Baptist right now, we pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes to see how Matthew is painting this particular part of John the Baptist's life. Allow us to then learn what his theology is and allow us to change. Allow us to repent, to turn to the way that you call us to in faithfulness to you, God. God, I pray right now in this room that you would remove distractions that we've brought into this room. Remove the distractions that we're about to go back towards. God, allow us to just meet with you here in this place. We pray, God, through your spirit that you would change us, that you would transform us so that we might be faithful to you to reflect your kingdom that is coming here on earth. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So two months before graduating from high school, I tell my youth pastor that I was not gonna work at the church. Now I've been interning at this church for quite a while and I was sure that this was the place I was supposed to be. I was gonna work at this church. They were gonna help pay for seminary. It was gonna be awesome. So I said, yes, I'm down for that. And then immediately from there, I started to feel a problem. I started not sleeping well. I started emotionally just having a lot of problems. I didn't understand what was going on until finally I realized I'm not supposed to take this job and I don't know why. And so I went to the pastor and I told him, I can't take this job. And then praying to God, I said, God, what am I supposed to do if I'm not supposed to be here? Well, my dad, he went to Texas A&M, whoop, right? And my older sister, she was at Texas A&M, whoop, right? So, okay, I grew up in Aggie. I went to the science fiction convention with my father. I read comics. I bled maroon, right? 
I'll go to Texas A&M. But then I was like, God, really though, if I'm not allowed to be here, why am I supposed to go there? And he revealed two words to me. And he said this, he said, be uncomfortable. Be uncomfortable. And what he revealed to me as a senior in high school was that I had built my entire life on comfort. I had made everything, my sports career, my academic career, even my time at the church, it was all about me. It was all about furthering my kingdom and my glory. And he said, you need to go be uncomfortable. You need to not be about yourself. You need to be about me and my kingdom. And said, I said, okay, so I'm supposed to go to Texas A&M. Is it really the hardest place to go? I mean, I've heard there's a Bible study on campus with over 10,000 students. How hard can this place be? And then I talked to one of my friends who had graduated from A&M and he was in this thing called the Corps of Cadets. And he said, bro, you should do the Corps of Cadets. And I was like, is it, is it cool? Is it hard? He was like, oh yeah, it'll be like the hardest time of your life. And I was like, I think that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> now, what you have to understand is I won class clown of my high school. I was a goofball. I was sporadic and spontaneous. I liked no structure, no schedule. And so the idea of the core, which I knew nothing about, I was like, yeah, I'm all in. You know what? I'll bring my best friend along and we'll go check out, spend the night with a core. And we did it. Seemed fun. Of course, he was an amazing cadet. I wasn't the best, whatever. So I brought him along. We get there, freshman orientation week, first day. We pull up in our foot lockers. My parents are with me. We meet the upperclassmen. The juniors and seniors, they're really nice. They're chatting with my family. I'm like, this is great. The sophomores, they're a little weird. Like they're wearing these uniforms. They, they look grimacing a little bit, but they grab my foot locker and sprint off. Don't say anything to me. I'm like, ah, it's whatever. My parents left. And as soon as my parents left, chaos ensued. Freshmen, get out on the wall. I don't know what that means, but we're all in our rooms. We're like, okay, we come out on the wall. They're like, get your back on the wall. You have lost all your privileges. I'm like, I don't know. What privileges are you talking about? What privileges am I losing? They're like, you are no longer individuals. You no longer have first names. You are all fish. You are fish Pinkerton. You are fish Thomason. I'm like, okay, that's a little strange. It got stranger. Then they're like, you know what? You've lost your individual privileges. You speak about yourself in the third person. And so if you need to ask a question, you better ask a question to ask a question. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. But I lock it up. I have to say, Mr. Bennett, sir, Fish Pinkerton requests permission to ask a question. Sir, what's your question, Fish Pinkerton? Fish Pinkerton requests permission to use the restroom, sir. I had to ask to use the restroom in third person. That's weird. It gets weirder. Then... They immediately take me and I have to go shave my head. My head gets shaved. Let me tell you something, team. I do not look good with a shaved head. I know because I'm enshrined on my parents' wall because my older sister decided to get married when I was a freshman in the Corps. So every time I go home, I'm reminded, uh, I don't look good bald, right? (laughs) Reminded. But let me tell you something. That was not the hardest part of my freshman year. The hardest part of my freshman year was that I had a buddy in my outfit. And my buddy, he just, he seemed angry and he seemed to want to always insult and make fun of me. He made fun of me. He made fun of my faith. He made fun of my family. And I happened to become this guy's roommate my freshman year. Now you get five items on your desk as a fish in the core. And one of my items, because you have to choose very selectively, only five, if a pin's on the desk, that's an item. I put my Bible on there. And I would open my Bible up and I'd have a verse highlighted. And my hope was that an upperclassman or a buddy would come in and see the Bible open and say, hey, tell me about this verse. Or what you read in there? Oh, this is the Bible, right? Just an opportunity. But my buddy, he took exception to that. 
And what started out as having to get back to my room and go look for my Bible because it had been taken off my desk and hid in maybe the air conditioning unit or under my sheets, eventually became more insidious, where verses in my Bible would be crossed out. Pictures eventually were being drawn in my Bible. You can imagine what. Eventually, I would go into my room and pages of my Bible had been ripped out. And by the end of my freshman year, I had to make sure my computer was always locked and I would have to change my password pretty regularly because he would break into my computer and put graphic images as my background or my screensaver. And I face that every day as a fish in the core. I wanted to be uncomfortable. Go figure. Why do I tell you that? Because I think a part of my life really comes alongside the story that we see in John the Baptist. And it's this. The followers of the king will face opposition. You can just write resistance. We all will face opposition, resistance. And we're going to see that in Matthew 14. And as you're turning there, if you're not there already, I want to tell you a little secret that I've learned in seminary. Very secret, very wise. Now, chapter 14, directly before chapter 14, chapter 13. And what precedes chapter 13 is chapter 12. Now, I tell you that because context is always important when you read the Bible. You need to understand where you're at and why. So in Matthew chapter 12, we're going to see the final rejection of Jesus. See, the spiritual leaders of Israel, they're going to look at Jesus and they're going to say, the power that you have, the miracles you're performing, the work that you're doing, all of that is through the power of Satan, Beelzebul. So in that moment, they commit what is called the unforgivable sin. And some of us has heard of that. And some of us are like, can we commit the unforgivable sin? No, because the only way to commit the unforgivable sin, if, if Jesus Christ himself was here, he was doing miracles through the power of the spirit for the glory of God, the father. And we looked and said, only through the power of Satan are you able to do that, Jesus. And so in that moment, you reject all three members of the Trinity. And of course, when you reject all three members of the Trinity, you will be condemned. And look what it says. Jesus says later in verse 30 of chapter 12, Whoever is not with me is against me. And then in verse 37, second half, by your own words, you will be condemned. Jesus is rejected. And what does Jesus immediately do in all the gospels? Directly after he gets this rejection, he starts to speak in parables. And we've heard of parables and Jesus starts telling these stories. And instead of plain English telling him exactly what he wants him to know, he starts to tell these stories. And the point of the stories, if we're reading through the Gospels, is that he wants people only that have the ears to hear and the eyes to see, the people that are willing to come up to Jesus and ask, what does this mean? They want to be near Jesus. They want to learn from Jesus. And they say, they say please teach me what that parable meant because I don't understand. Jesus immediately starts speaking in parables after he is rejected. First, we see the parable of the sower, which shows these seeds that are thrown on four soils. But only one of those soils even produces fruit. So obviously only a part of the gospel preaching is going to bear fruit. And then we see the parable of the wheat and the tares. And what we can learn from that parable is that there is an enemy fighting against the kingdom of God that is planting weeds in the midst of the wheat. So Satan is the kingdom's enemy. And lastly, we see parables of the mustard seed and the parables of the yeast. We can expect opposition to come through these parables. At the very end of chapter 13, what happens to Jesus? He is rejected in his own hometown. And he says this, they took offense at him, but Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and in his own house. 
So he was rejected by Israel through the leadership. He speaks of rejection that is coming and opposition that is coming. And then he is finally rejected even in his own hometown. And in this moment, we have to always read scripture from the lens of who is the author and who is he writing to and what can we learn from that message? Well, Matthew is writing to a Christian Jewish audience. These are Christian Jews that have already seen Jesus die, rise again, and ascend into heaven. What's the question that Matthew is answering for these Jewish Christians? They're probably asking, if the king, the Messiah, who we've been expecting for so long has been rejected, what happened to the kingdom? Where's the kingdom? The king's been rejected. And that's when we get to Matthew 14. So we're going to learn what happened to the kingdom. And in Matthew 14, we see this. Verse three, Herod Antipas, he had seized John the Baptist. He bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So let's recap where we're at. Opposition is coming, fam, because of this. Jesus was rejected. His parables tell about it. He's rejected again. And now the forerunner, the person whose ministry is so connected with Jesus, the Messiah, he's also thrown into prison. So why would we expect any less for our walk with the Lord than to face resistance? And I don't know what the resistance is going to look like for you. Maybe you'll be ridiculed. Maybe you'll have a buddy rip out pages in your Bible and put graphic images on your computer. Maybe for you, it'll be family and friends that reject you or make fun of you because you follow an outdated book, a bunch of rules that make no sense, following a God that's invisible. You're gonna get made fun of. You're gonna be secluded, maybe some of you will actually give up your life. Maybe you will face persecution and danger for your entire family. Resistance is coming. It's not an if, but a when. Faithful followers of Christ will face resistance. My question is why? And he actually answers it in the passage. Why do followers of Christ face resistance? Because of this, the followers of the evil one, they pursue preservation of power and their own reputation. I wrote renown because the followers of the evil one, of Satan, they care more about their own power and reputation than they do about anything else. And we see that in the passage. Look at verse four and five, because John the Baptist had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her, Herodias. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. See, John the Baptist looked at Herod and the Herod family and dynasty, it would win all the major awards in television today. It would have the most views in drama for sure because the Herod family was screwed up. Herod the Great was the guy that murdered all the babies when Jesus was born trying to kill Jesus. His son, Herod Antipas, right? He is married to this other woman. They go past and he sees his half-brother, Philip. Herod sees his half-brother, Philip. He really likes her wife. So he convinces her to leave his own brothers, leave his own brother. He leaves his wife and they get together. What's even worse, if you look at the family line, Herodias is actually the niece of Herod. So you have incest and you have adultery. And John the Baptist calls it out. He speaks truth in that moment and says, this is not lawful. This is not righteous according to the kingdom of God. But more than just an individual where, where Harry gets upset because maybe he individually is losing power. The theology of Matthew is speaking much more than just an individual. Let's read this. 
Matthew 14, 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, he heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this must be, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. What we learn is this, that the kingdom of God supersedes any earthly kingdom. It supersedes any political power, any ideology, any country or nation. It is greater. And when it comes, it will be the most important. It will be the greatest. So it makes complete sense that if you strive to maintain your own power and your own prestige and your own renown, when something greater comes in, what do you do? You fight back against it because you try and preserve your own power. And I learned that from my buddy, my sophomore year. He said something pretty inappropriate to me in front of my freshman that I was training about my family. Me and him went into a room and shut the door. We were going to have a nice jovial conversation. And I turned to him and I say, bro, what is your problem with me? Why do you hate me and my family and my God so much? And he said two things to me and I'll never forget it. He said, one, I hate that the way you live makes me feel guilty. Like my life is wrong. And two, I hate that people see you as a good guy and me as a bad guy. And that was very telling to me. That was, that was very vulnerable of my buddy to tell me that. And so I heard that and I'm like, that makes sense. And it is the characteristic of a follower of the evil one who wants to preserve their own power. And so if I live a certain way and it makes you feel guilty or convicted or it makes you want to preserve your own reputation so you have to attack and tear down, that's a characteristic. That is a quality of a person seeking their own renown. So in this story, we've now seen Jesus get rejected. We've seen parables talking about how all of us followers are going to face persecution and rejection. And then we see the forerunner who, based on this verse, we know is now murdered. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, has been killed. And my question for us is, looking at all that, do we have any hope in this life? Do any of us have any hope if the Messiah was rejected, the forerunner was rejected, and we're called to live a life that has resistance and oppression? Do we have any hope? And the answer is, yes, we do have hope. We do have hope. And that's what Matthew's getting at to these Christian Jewish audience that we learn from them. Let's look at this. This is the hope that we have. The kingdom of God will be fully established on earth at Jesus's second coming. The kingdom of God on earth will be fully established at Jesus's second coming. And we see that in this passage. It says this in verse 12, and his disciples, John's, they came, they took his body and they buried it. And then they went and they told Jesus. Why is this significant? How does this give us hope? Well, we need to know context. Chapter 11 was the last time we saw John the Baptist and he was already in prison and he sent his own disciples to go and talk to Jesus. And the message, the question that he asked Jesus through his disciples was this, are you the one to come or should we look for another? See, John the Baptist in that moment, he fell trap to the same thing that the disciples did all throughout Jesus's ministry. They expected a militaristic, political, powerful ruler to come in and to wipe out Rome and to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth immediately, right then and there. And yet when John's hearing the reports of Jesus, he says, 
are you actually the guy? And what does Jesus say to him? He says, look at all the things I'm doing. The miracles and the work I'm performing, all the things I'm doing are a part of the kingdom of God. They are a reflection of the kingdom to come. And so that is your answer. Everything I'm doing is reflecting the kingdom of God. So you tell me if I'm the Messiah. And he sends his people back. That's the last we heard of John the Baptist until his death, his beheading by Herod. His disciples came, they buried his body and they immediately went and told Jesus. That tells us two things. One, it tells us that the response that John the Baptist got back was favorable. He's like, all right, I'm all in on Jesus. Yep, okay. And number two, what was John the Baptist's message? We have to remember. John the Baptist's message, he must increase, but I must decrease. I'm not even fit to tie the guy's sandals. The lamb of God. Well, he dies and what happens? His disciples immediately leave him and where do they go? It's not too far to say that they followed Jesus. They left John and they followed Jesus. The mission was not over. It gets better. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. Jesus withdrew. This is significant in the theology of Matthew. There was just a banquet. And in that banquet was the murder of the last prophet. He was murdered in that moment. Jesus withdraws. And what's the next moment in the passage? Jesus feeds the 5,000. 5,000 men plus the women and children that were there. And what does it say in verse 20, verse, or first half of 20? Everyone ate, everyone was satisfied. A banquet of rejection, a withdrawal, and a messianic banquet with Jesus. What's, what is Matthew trying to convey? Jesus is coming back. And you can have hope because he will return and he will make all things right. All the problems that we face, all the pain and the hurt from the cause of sin and its effects, all of those things will be done away with because Jesus is coming back and you can find hope in that. Now I'm a CrossFit coach in Dallas and it would be amiss if I couldn't get through a whole sermon without talking about CrossFit. Now I'm talking with my athletes and I throw 20 minutes up on the clock and I say, as many rounds and reps as possible in these 20 minutes, you're gonna do all these different pieces. Three, two, one, go. Blood's pumping, muscles straining, breathing, sweating, awesome moment. Everyone's just going at it. One minute left on the clock. And I say, one minute. And it's a phenomenon I've noticed. All of these athletes who thought they were pushing as hard as they possibly could, they look and see one minute left on the clock and somehow they all push harder the last minute than they did the first 19. Why is that? Because in the midst of their resistance, they looked to the rest that was coming and they found hope and they were able to push through. They looked to the rest that was coming in the midst of their resistance and they were able to push through. And it's the same for us, church. When we focus our eyes on Jesus's return and that hope, then no matter the resistance, the oppression, the seclusion, the embarrassment that we will face in this life, all we have to do is look to Jesus and know you're coming back and you're gonna fix this problem. And so I can be firm and stand strong. I can run this race with endurance because I know that all things are gonna be made new. And that's our hope for us. And that was the hope that Matthew was trying to present to those Jews then. So in light of that, in light of looking at the return of Jesus, what are we called to do? And it's this. 
resolutely respond to resistance with righteous living. We need to resolve in our resistance, whatever that's going to look like, we need to resolve to look to that hope of his return and respond with righteousness. Respond with righteousness. And how does John the Baptist do it? If you've ever been to Dallas, Dallas Theological, they have a saying, it's teach truth and love well. We are called to teach truth and love well. Well, in that moment, John the Baptist saw what was unlawful, what was unrighteous, what was not befitting of the kingdom of God and his people. And he spoke into that moment. He taught truth. He was willing to sacrifice his comfort for the sake of teaching about the kingdom. He was willing to give it all up. And we are also called in that moment when we teach truth, you have to love well. You need to be bold in your convictions and you need to be gentle in the way you do it. We all know the people that slash whenever they bring conviction. They just want to beat people down or they just throw it out without any prayer, without any gentleness, without any focus. And so we see those people and we're like, I can't say anything negative about anyone ever because I don't want to be that person. And yet we're called to teach truth in the midst of our resistance, but in that process, we're called to love well. So I have two very specific applications along this line, and it's this. Reflect and repent first. When we look at John the Baptist, when I look at John the Baptist, and I say, I would have at that time period said, John, you can speak about anything. Just don't speak about that. Why would you call out Herod when you know it's probably going to get you put in prison and maybe killed? Your ministry could be so much more effective, could be longer lasting. But instead, you're going to speak about this and get thrown in prison. That's, that's foolish, John. The reality is we live in a time where we're passive. We have been passive for a very long time about a lot of issues And so when we reflect, we say, God, what areas of my life have I been silent about? Have I not spoken in truth, but in love, but still spoken into my culture? For me, immediately when I think about it, three big pieces, racism, sexism, and socioeconomic manipulation. We live in a place and a culture where we see people that speak against that and we don't want to be those people or we don't want to get our hands dirty. I don't want to get labeled a loudmouth. I don't want to be put in a different camp. I'm comfortable. But remember, what is the mark of the evil one? It's the person that's trying to seek their own comfort, their own renown, instead of sacrificing that for the kingdom of God. So there's areas of our life right now where we have been passive and stood by. And what we need to do is be honest about that. We need to pray. We need to repent to the Lord. And there's people in our lives we need to repent to as well. We need to say, sorry, I've stood by in this time period because I was comfortable. And the reality is that that's not right. And I'm going to speak into that situation. So that's the reflecting and the repenting. And lastly, engage in that place. Engage in that sphere. Whatever that area is of your life, maybe use today to think about it. What areas have you avoided saying anything about? Family, friends, wherever that piece is. And you've been quiet for too long. And it's not befitting of the followers of the king. So what I want to end with is this. Reflect. Reflect. You see, the followers of the king reflect the anticipated kingdom of God. When we as a church face resistance, 
with righteousness. When we respond in hope through our lives of righteousness, what does the world see? They see the anticipated kingdom to come. But not only to the world, we show that to one another. See, I told you guys that I came into the core, but I didn't come in alone. I brought my battle buddy with me. I brought my best friend. He came into the core with me. And every morning after physical training and then formation, we would meet and we would read the Bible together and we would pray. We'd pray for one another. We'd pray for our buddies in our outfit. We'd pray for our upperclassmen. We prayed for our future underclassmen that were coming into the core with us. And what started out our outfit was no, our name of our outfit, aptly known as Hellcats. And when we came into that outfit, me and my brother Bryce, we felt like we may, might've been the only believers in that whole outfit. We didn't know. Throughout my time in the core, I got to see multiple buddies put their faith in Jesus, come into a relationship with our one true God. I saw upperclassmen put their faith in Jesus. I had one upperclassman, he was a junior, put his faith in God, radical life transformation, went to DTS, now works at the church that Chris Thompson used to work at. Just crazy stories. I had underclassmen put their faith in Jesus. My senior year, I was chaplain of the core. I saw many, many, many cadets put their faith in Jesus. Why is that? Because I had my battle buddy who constantly was reflecting to me in the midst of the resistance that you and I both are facing, I'm going to faithfully follow the Lord our God. And that gave me confidence. That gave me encouragement. We would talk together. We would walk together. And as the world and our buddies and the whole quad got to see our outfit, over the four years, our outfit became much more known as the outfit that was involved in the Bible studies on the quad. It was a joyful and awesome experience, but it was because we responded to that resistance in hope that this is only for a short while. Jesus is coming back. And so I'm called to reflect the kingdom that I'm a part of. So in summary, all of us are going to face resistance of some sort. It's coming. If it's not coming, that probably says something about how we're living, honestly. If we're going to reflect and repent and then engage, if we're going to teach truth and love well in our culture, if we're going to engage in those places that we've been passive about, you will face resistance. And that's because the enemy is going to seek their own preservation of power, of their renown. They don't want the kingdom of God to be more powerful than them and their renown. But in that moment, in that resistance, we look to Jesus's return. And we say, you're going to make all things right, Jesus. And so I can faithfully follow you in righteousness. And when we do that, church, when we respond to that resistance with righteous living, we reflect to the world and to one another the kingdom of God that all of us are so blessed to be a part of. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you grateful and humbled about not only the character of John the Baptist, God, but what you're teaching us today through Matthew's writing. And that is that you are coming back. God, that no matter the resistance, the oppression, the problems that we face, the hardships that will come because we profess to believe in Jesus Christ, we know that we have a hope that is unshakable because it is inevitable that Jesus, you are gonna come back and you are gonna make all these things right. And so we look forward to that day and hope. And not only do we look forward to that day and hope, that gives us such confidence now to respond in righteousness. 
God, we pray that you would reveal to us areas of our life where we have sat on the sideline, not wanting to get our hands dirty. Please guide us, convict our hearts. Allow us to teach truth and love well in that moment. God, give us confidence and boldness only found through our hope in you, Jesus. Allow the world to see our lives and the way we respond to our resistance and allow them to know you, Jesus, to know the kingdom that is coming. We pray that our lives will be of worship to you, God. We pray all of this in hope that it's not just education, but transformation, that we leave this place changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.